and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in. Coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show. Welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Well, it's happened. Finally happened. The election has come. The election has gone. The results, hmm, not so much. But we're going to talk a lot about that. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff with a wonderful guest, a monumentally important figure in this project that we call Counterpunch. And let me just briefly implore you to go over to counterpunch.org and get yourself a subscription to Counterpunch Plus. So that is free for the rest of this year. But as of next year, you're going to need to be a subscriber. And that is a great way to support Counterpunch to keep this project going. More than 25 years, Counterpunch has been publishing all kinds of viewpoints from the left, from a critical perspective. And uh, frankly, it's needed even more in these times as we head into a, a potential Biden administration. And God only knows what that's going to mean. So uh, we need Counterpunch now more than ever. Go over to the website, make a uh, get a subscription, make a donation, buy some merch, whatever you feel you need to do to help us out. Greatly appreciated. All right. And you could also check out my Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Eric Drates. There are lots more content there, videos, articles, commentaries, and a whole lot more. All right. Got Joshua Frank with me today, managing editor of Counterpunch. Swell guy. Lots to say. Election over. Josh, hi. Hey, Eric. How's it going? Oh, not bad. Not bad. I mean, obviously, you know, celebrating the fact that tr the, the, the beast named Trump has been slain, at least it seems that way. Uh, celebration somewhat muted, knowing who Biden is, what he represents and what will inevitably come. But for now, celebrating. What about you? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think that uh, we've been living <laughs> four years under what I like to call sort of psychological trauma of the Trump administration day in and day out. Um, we definitely are going to have a host of new problems with the Biden administration, but it's certainly nice to see him, uh, you know, be defeated in the way that he has. And of course he hasn't accepted it yet and probably won't for some time. Um, but the, the wheels are off and it's, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how it kind of transpires over the next couple of months. I think it would be nice to have, of reality TV camera set up in the West Wing right now to see uh, just exactly what the meltdown looks like. Well, it feels like we've had a reality TV camera in the White House for four years, so I suppose it couldn't hurt. But uh, I guess I'll just follow up on that brief uh, comment there. Do you think that, well, what do you think the scenario is as far as him not conceding, not accepting Joe Biden's victory? Um, how far can he take this? How far can it go? Uh, could this stretch out into the new year, potentially disrupting all of the transition stuff? Or what do you think? I think that it's possible. I mean, anything's possible with Trump. I, I don't think that he will ever accept a, a Biden victory. You know, I think a lot of these sort of frivolous lawsuits that they've levied across the country are they're they're going to eventually fizzle out. And even if a few of them you know, gain a couple votes here and there for Trump if they if they do that. It's not going to change the out uh, you know the outcome of the election. Uh, but you know, Trump's still going to go along with saying that this election was stolen, that it was rigged, and of course, a contingent of his base will follow along with that. Um, and I don't think he's going to go happy. I think he's going to be kicking and screaming the whole way. Um, now, the interesting thing is, what, you know, he eventually will be gone. 
and what's going to be left behind. I mean, you have Ted Cruz, you have Marco Rubio, you have a few others that are, are, you know, Lindsey Graham that are saying essentially a softer version of what Trump is saying that there's some nefarious stuff that went on and it needs to be addressed. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if they come around or if they're going to stick to their guns as well um, on this whole fraud uh, allegation. Um, and it could make it rather sticky. Uh, of course, we've already seen some of the moderate Republicans, uh, legacy ones, of course, like George W. Bush and Mitt Romney and sort of sort of the centrist wing of the Republican Party um, acknowledge that Biden has won. Um, so I think you are going to see a little bit of this division within the Republican establishment and where that goes is yet to be seen. And a lot of that might be contingent as well about you know, how it turns out in Georgia in January with the two runoff elections that are going to be taking place there. And before we touch on some of those other issues, what do you think is Trump's next step? Where do you envision Trump going? What do you see him doing? What kind of a role does he fill and what kind of a political impact does he continue to have? Well, that's, you know, that's, I think that's the big question out there. Uh, You know, he definitely, this whole time they've been complaining about the fact that the that since they're in public office, that the Trump machine hasn't been able to go out there and make a bunch of money. Um, It'll be interesting to see how that transpires once he leaves the White House. A lot of his properties aren't doing very well. They weren't doing well before, and now they're not doing very well because of COVID. Um, He definitely is under investigation with the state of New York and the Manhattan district attorney. So he could be facing some prosecution as well which he's definitely afraid of from multiple reports, whether or not that those prosecutions happen is another story, but he's, there's reason to believe that he's afraid. And then of course there's other rumors, which aren't new rumors, but they've come to light again, that he would be starting his own sort of TV network. Um, so I think he's got a lot of, uh, you know, got a lot of ways that he can, he can spin this to his advantage. Um, but, you know, as the New York Times and others have reported as well, he's he's in a lot of debt and he owes a lot of money. Uh, so <laughs> I don't think the reality TV show of the Trump dynasty is going anywhere anytime soon, even after he leaves the White House. But do you think that uh, he really will face prosecution? I mean, obviously, I'm asking you to peer into a, yeah. a crystal ball here, but... Um, any prosecution of Trump would inherently be political and politicized. And I think it would take a tremendous, my personal opinion, it would take a tremendous amount of political courage to actually prosecute the former president, despite the fact that he's blatantly and obviously and self-evidently a criminal in more ways than one. To do it would uh, stir up political tensions that I would imagine somebody like Biden and an administration like Biden's is going to be more than happy to like sort of let sleeping dogs lie? Um, I think that's probably true as far as the, you know, any sort of federal charges that could come. Uh, but again, it's, it's, as you know, living in New York, how fiercely independent the law enforcement is there as far as, you know, the Manhattan district attorney, uh, and the, you know, New York attorney general, uh, you know, the, I, it's hard to say what kind of cases they've been building. Obviously they've been looking at a lot of different things over the years. Um, I'm sure they're, as you know, like they've, they're the ones that leaked the document, his tax returns to the New York times. So they, they you know, it, I think it probably is 
less about the politics and more about what kind of case they might have. Um, I'm definitely wouldn't put money on him ever being arrested or anything like that. But I, I do think that he could get caught up in some legal battles. They're certainly not, I don't think they're just going to go away. Um, and I don't know how much control Biden has over those kind of, you know, over those state jurisdictions. No, but Governor Cuomo has a tremendous amount of pull and Cuomo is about as deep into the the establishment right. of the Democratic Party as one could be. So, I mean, it would in effect be the President Biden acting through Governor Cuomo to squash any potential uh, charges. And my personal feeling is that's the most likely scenario because I I don't think there's a courageous person to be found in the New York, uh, you know, legal, you know, ju- judicial bureaucracy. Tish James, the attorney general is, you know, I guess she's okay, but you know, I mean, she's a, she's just a standard Democrat, you know, ladder climbing yeah. politician. So I don't really see somebody that's going to stick their neck out, maybe potentially their career to take on Trump. Yeah, and that may be that may be the case, but again, I think it has more to do with what kind of allegations or what the prosecution might look like, um, and how strong of a case that they have. Uh, they, there's certainly a mutual animosity between you know the attorney general and, and Trump in New York. Uh, they they all hate Trump, of course. So it, you know it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Regardless if it happens or not, I do think that Trump is pretty nervous about it, and I think that. Um, maybe even more than the legal threats. There's a lot of financial threats that are looming over over him right now. And those are probably more substantial than any sort of legal prosecution. But again, it, it's uh, I have not been in those rooms. I don't know exactly what they're going to be going after. They We know that they've been looking at some of his you know early campaign finance issues with Stormy Daniels using money to pay her. So, you know, if it's frivolous in that sense, I don't think it'll go anywhere. But if it's a deeper sort of uh, Trump misconduct, Trump dynasty misconduct, it, it could result in prosecution. But it's, you know, that's a ways away. We'll see what happens. Yeah, of course. And again, Trump has innumerable crimes. There's no doubt about that. And uh, certainly New York is one of those jurisdictions where he's going to get caught up in a number of things, including any of these international financial transactions that could have potentially gone through New York financial institutions and so forth, the Deutsche Bank case. There's a whole Mm -hmm. lot of potential uh, liabilities for Trump uh, in New York. I guess my only my only thought on that is I mean given what we know historically I'm <laughs> to see a former president facing prosecution I mean that would certainly be something. Yeah, and it, you know maybe more likely and this is also just a <laughs> playing, you know, fortune teller. Uh similar to Nixon if he was charged with some sort of federal crime uh I don't believe that Biden would not pardon him. He would be pardoned. So, you know, maybe there is some sort of something that could happen there that he gets charged and uh, later is just compardoned. And, you know, of course, there's rumors that he would pardon himself and those around him now to stave off any sort of future prosecution at the federal level. So uh, that's that, those are some of the things we'll probably be looking at over the next six weeks or so. Um, and frankly, I hope that he holds on to this idea that he won the election because the the more he's 
focused on that, the less he might um, <laughs> peel back the onions of some of the, the stuff that he's already been trying to tear apart regulation wise and, and other things, which of course, Biden will probably spend the first six months of his administration trying to piece back together. Um, but yeah, it's, we're, we're in for a, a rough, a rough ride here, I think over the, the next, uh, until, until Biden is, um, in the white house. Do you think there's any? There, do you think there's anything to the to the idea that Trump is trying to develop some kind of leverage going into this transition period? I mean, he knows he lost. He knows that he's not going to reverse these results. I think he knows that. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he's so delusional that he doesn't. But I kind of think he probably does, and that he's doing this for whatever his reasons are. Maybe it's for show for his base, or maybe this is to kind of develop some kind of leverage to make some kind of a deal. Like if you want me to uh, concede this election and gracefully transition and do this and that and the third, then you're going to have to give me A, B, and C. You think there's anything to it? Because Trump is so transactional in that way and has Mm -hmm. so little regard for anything other than his own well-being. I have every reason to believe he would do that. I, yeah, it's quite possible. I mean, whatever the outcome is and however he plays this, it's definitely going to be done in a way that is going to potentially at least try to benefit him. Um, so if that is leverage, if that is, uh, giving a jail, get a, get out jail, get out of jail free card to Don Jr. or whoever, um, you know, I think that what he's probably looking at also is uh, a potential run either by him or one of his sons in four years. I mean, the, the Trumps are not going to be going away. And I think that is a pretty frightening prospect. Um, frankly, a lot of Republicans are pretty scared of it as well. But the fact that he got the number of votes that he did, uh, that, that's the reason you're seeing a lot of these uh, more right wing Republicans that have been on Trump's side from day one uh, coming to his defense right now, because I think they are going to move in that direction. They think that Trump is a winner and they're going to tie themselves to him. Uh, Again, I think there will be a fight within the Republican Party. um, And I think a lot of that is going to hinge on how Georgia turns out in January as far as who controls the Senate. I understand what you mean by an ideological fight, um, you know, between the sort of the center of the Republican Party, you know, the the neocons, the Mitt Romneys and George Bushes of the world, and, uh, you know, sort of the far right post Tea Party Trump wing of the party. Do you think that it's too late for the Mitt Romney types to retake their party, like the Lincoln Project Republicans, can they retake the Republican Party given what has happened here? Because it certainly seems that Trump has in many ways discredited their brand of politics and made it basically akin to, well, not that different from liberals. Yeah, I I think that the Lincoln Project in that sort of wing of the Republican establishment is pretty damn excited about a Biden administration because, of course, Biden himself is a centrist. He ran on a centrist platform. He ran as an anti-socialist. Uh, he's a, he's very milquetoast. And in that regard, Biden himself is a Republican, right? Um, I don't think that the radical Trump wing of the Republican Party is going to go away. In fact, I think that it has been radicalized under him. And they see the amount of support that 
Trump, even after four years of mayhem, still was able to get. Uh, of course, they took seats in the House um, and the Senate is up for grabs. So I don't I don't see that the Trump, you know, Trumpite sort of ideology is going to be going anywhere um, anytime soon. But that being said, I think that there is a contingent of the old school Republicans that are pretty happy that Trump is gone. Um, and there's been obviously numerous reports about that. So, you know, I, yeah, and I, I think there's going to be an ideological battle, but I think more so it's, it's, a, it's a battle about power. It's going to be regaining the Senate is going to be a, a main focus of the Republicans if they lose it. They're definitely already gaming for taking back the House in two years. Um, and so however they can do that is how they'll do it. And I think if it's uh, adhering to Trump's playbook, they're going to do it. Let's talk a little bit about a Biden administration here. Obviously, I'm not going to go run down the list of names the way that, you know, the cable news people are doing now and playing their little parlor game. But let's talk about a couple of people that are uh, obviously very significant and high up on that list. Specifically, the first one that comes to mind is Susan Rice. Susan Rice has been at the top, I think, of everybody's shortlist. She, she was at one point, uh, I think, a final sort of a final contender for for Biden's running mate. Obviously, he went with Kamala Harris, but uh, Susan Rice at the top of the list for Secretary of State. Give me, uh, give me your perspective on that and on Susan Rice and on specifically what Susan Rice as Secretary of State you think would mean for U.S. foreign policy. Well, it's it's really getting back to the U.S. foreign policy without the temper tantrums. <laughs> so imperialism without the temper tantrums, essentially. And as you've written about extensively, Susan Rice was greatly involved in getting Obama into the Libya mess. Um, of course, the Republicans don't like her because of the Benghazi ordeal. But when it comes down to it, Susan Rice is definitely a liberal neocon. And I think that uh, she'll have no problem getting confirmed, even if the Republicans have control of the Senate. Um, and I think that she's pretty not, con you know, she's not controversial within the halls of power in Washington. Uh, what that means for U.S. foreign policy, I think it means a continuation of what's been going on. And in fact, in many ways, might even be a more hawkish approach than some of the, you know, Trump administration has taken on certain issues. Um, I do think that she will uh, try to reach out and uh, recoup a relationship with Iran and the nuclear deal. Um, so there are maybe some a little positive there. But as far as it goes with China and much of the rest of the Middle East, it's going to be more of the same, and if not worse, than what we've been seeing. And one of the critical things about Susan Rice, too, is her uh, background training and focus on Africa. So we could see the right. U.S. really reengaging in Africa, much as it did under the Obama administration, where AFRICOM became a really pivotal uh, node in U.S. power projection. I think that we could very well see that, particularly now, given that there are multiple crises in Africa, one of them, of course, being the continued civil war in Libya, one being a potential civil war or just beginning in Ethiopia, which Susan Rice has a long history with. So uh, it would appear that she might be the woman for the moment and God help us, really. Right. You know, and, but on the flip side, it's it's kind of a wait and see game as well. She might not be the one that's chosen. Um, 
And, and then uh, we have Biden saying that he will uh, get the U.S. out of any involvement in the Yemen bloodshed. So, you know, there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of false promises and a, and a lot of things that we're going to have to keep our eye on as this thing unfolds. Hillary Clinton, go. <laughs> you know, I I've talked a lot with Ralph Nader and with you and with others about Hillary Clinton and prospect of her being resurrected in a Biden administration. But frankly, I just don't see it happening. I don't think that, I think she's too politically toxic. Um, I think if, at least for something like a state position, uh, I just don't, I don't see her being resurrected in a, in a Biden administration. With that said, if she was, um, I, we obviously know who she is and what she represents and in what direction she would take it. Um, but again, I think that there's a lot of candidates that have Hillary Clinton politics that just aren't as politically toxic as she is. The interesting thing about that to me was always the fact that, you know, when Obama won in 2008, it was like this shock to, uh, you know, what they call Clinton world, right? Mm-hmm. And it was like, you know, this 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 interloper, right, has has stepped in on our game. And after eight years of Obama as president, you know, there there became sort of Obama world, right? And never the twain shall meet, right? Obama world and and Hillary world. But the fact is that those two quote unquote worlds are really what make up the Democratic Party, the establishment of the Democratic Party. So my question then really is, as with Biden as president, is there really one establishment in the Democratic Party that includes Clinton and Biden and Obama, or are there still differences, divergences, and areas of uh, conflict between Hillary and the Clinton orbit and Obama, Biden, and that orbit? Well, I think if you were to talk to Democrats in Washington, they would say that that those differences really don't exist anymore. Um, <clears throat> I have a hard time believing that there is an animosity still uh, between the Clintons and the Obama wing. Uh, but you know, eight years is a long time. Uh, Obama was out campaigning for Hillary four years ago. Uh, Hillary was da- out campaigning for Biden. I think. Uh, when faced with the prospect of another four years of Trump, they probably were solidifying their efforts to get rid of him. Uh, there might be some personal animosities and other things still there, of course. But I mean to say that now that Trump is out of the way, is yeah. Hillary the kind of person who would be brought into the Oval Office, say, in a, in a, maybe in an informal advisory capacity or, you know, as a consultant or something like this? Because, you know, ultimately, I mean, like it or not, Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. She does yeah. know that job. She does know a lot of these things. So I guess I don't think it's that much of a stretch to imagine Biden and Hillary yucking it up in the Oval Office. Oh, I, I, think, I think she's definitely going to be in a in some sort of advisory capacity. I don't think that she'll necessarily have some sort of ambassador role or something else, but yeah, she will, she will be involved in a Biden administration on some level. There's no question about it. Boy, going through all of this really gives me a a sense of deja vu. Um, And I know that it's totally different and I know 2020 is not 2008, but the parallels are striking and the have the experience of having gone through that makes me shudder to think of the experience yeah. this time around because 
2008, you know, Obama is elected, celebrations from liberals, you know, everybody is losing their shit over this guy, Obama, right? And Obama, of course, addresses none of the fundamental problems that had created the the 2008 uh, subprime crisis, the economic recession, none of that, papered over all of it, didn't address any of the fundamental problems and really paved the way for Trump. And so now it's like we're replaying this, right? Like we're going to undo Trump. We're just going to bring in Biden, who's going to do nothing and is going to make the problems worse. And we're going to watch once again as the liberals who pretended to care about all of these issues for the last four years are going to fall away like flies. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of similarities between 2008 and 2020, but there's a lot of differences. Um, I think. Uh, the Obama campaign was was one that um, a, a contingent of progressives were pretty pretty hopeful about, and that was really his hope and change campaign. Um, that what he ran on. I, but uh, different now, I don't think that a lot of people believe or would argue that Biden is a progressive. Um, of course, we know in retrospect. Of course, Obama was not progressive. Uh, but in 2008, I think there was still hope that that kind of change could come through a Obama administration because he was fought off the Clinton wing of the Democratic Party. Um, and another thing that was much different in 2008 is the the Democrats crushed it in the ha- in the uh, Senate. Excuse me, they picked up something like eight seats. So he went in with a real mandate. I mean, Biden is saying that he has a mandate, but. Obama had one and he had uh, those first couple of years uh, where he had carte blanche to do what he wanted to do. Biden's not going to be coming in with that kind of power. And we're in a much different situation economically. Um, Of course, COVID economy has some echoings of the Great Recession. But as we know, um, it's, it's much different. The housing market, at least right now, is very stable. In fact, going up um, the stock market's doing really well. Uh, but of course people out there, um, working that, you know, it's pretty, pretty damn dire. Um, but COVID, you know, and one thing that the, that Trump would repeatedly say, which is somewhat true is if once COVID is under control, the economy would get back up and running pretty quickly. Of course, the, 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 the steps to get to that place were, were never, we're never there um, with the Trump administration, but that's going to be Biden's number one, you know, number one goal once he's in power is to, and in fact, I think today to, they already released their COVID strategy, um, which is really an economic strategy to, to to get the economy back up and running. So there's a lot of similarities, but a lot of differences. And I think there's a lot less hope this time. Uh, people in 2008 voted for Obama, and I think people in 2020 voted against Trump. Let's take a quick break. I want to pick up right there on the other side of the break, talking a little bit about this 2008-2020 parallel, because obviously it's not the same, but certain striking uh, similarities that do cause worry. So uh, enjoy the music. We'll be right back with Joshua Frank, Managing Editor of Counterpunch. See you soon. Oh, 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 
And we're back chatting with Joshua Frank. Go to counterpunch.org is the website. Counterpunch Plus, get your subscription now. Support Counterpunch, support all that good work. So much great content, both in the subscriber section, which is still free for everybody for the rest of the year, and also daily on the front page, on the homepage. So all of that really, really deserves your support. If you like that stuff, go to the website, make a donation, do what you got to do. All right, Josh, um, I want to kind of pick up where we were left off before the break talking about this 2008-2020 parallel because I, of course, agree with everything that you said. Obviously, it's totally different. The situation is vastly different. Everything from the housing market to the employment numbers to everything is different. At the same time, there's a feeling that while it's different, it's really only sort of more intense. The crisis is more acute, more widespread, and that there's much higher stakes. And yet Obama was much more capable than this doddering, demented fool Biden, right? So it feels like we are setting up a disaster of a scenario here where the right-wing Democrats basically governing in coalition with their Republican friends to make sure that the people who are most affected by COVID and everything don't get shit thereby creating an ever deeper crisis that will only last until whoever the uh, you know successor to Biden is. Yeah, I think that's a, a really strong possibility. Um, we've been living with four years of Trump trauma, uh, but during that time, the right wing in this country has been radicalized. Um, obviously, those divisions have always been there, but Trump made them more stark. And it it really empowered um, a lot of people. And I think the way that Biden is already framing, well, well, obviously framed his campaign and is now framing this transition is that he's going to be a uniter. And that uniter, as you just mentioned, is going to be bringing together Republicans and Democrats to get some stuff done. Uh, but what is that stuff done? What does that mean? It's definitely not going to be progressive economic policies. It's definitely not going to be um, a real uh, progressive climate change uh, strategy because, frankly, um, they're not going to be able to get that through the Senate um, when it's this, this tight. So, uh, and Biden also doesn't want to. You know, there's a lot of talk about what he, that, you know, he's going to take this very serious and he's going to, of course, he'll sign back on to the Paris, you know, climate accord. Um, he's going to probably have Ernie, uh, you know, uh, Munez to be his, you know, secretary of, uh, def, you know, the environment. Um, but it's going to be pro fac, pro fracking. It's going to be pro nuclear. The you know big emphasis on transition fuels. The oil, the oil and gas industry is not frightened of a, a Biden administration. They're they're simply not. You know that's just one example. Um, of course, the Pentagon is not worried about a Biden administration the military industrial complex is going to be just fine under a Biden administration. He's not going to go in there to rock the, rock the boat. He's going to go in there to bring a little bit more sanity to the process. That's all. Um, and in doing so, I think one of the major goals is going to be this new project of getting America uh, back to where it was during the Obama administration globally. So I think there's going to be new relationships forged and um, new wars fought, frankly. Uh, the war on terror isn't going to be going anywhere. Um, our conflict with Russia is likely only going to escalate. 
you know, some things might change with Iran, might change with China. Uh, but overall, it's just a simple minor realignment of U.S. power globally. And on that point about China, uh, we've we've heard signaling from the uh, Biden camp or those around Biden, those who might you might say are media surrogates for Biden, that uh, we're not going to see a tremendous let up in the belligerence towards China, that Biden, that the establishment seems to have spoken that uh, that's one of Trump's big accomplishments was really setting the U.S. on a confrontational course with China, which at least some sectors of the ruling class seem to really enjoy. Yeah, there's certainly no no reason to believe that that's going to radically change, at least not in, right away. Um, you know, some of the rhetoric's probably going to be toned down a little bit. Uh, but you know, Biden, unlike Trump, is he 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 is a masterclass in Washington politics. He's been there for a really long time. He operated inside and was pretty involved in a lot of Obama era policies. He knows how to get this stuff done in a way that won't be confrontational like Trump politics are. And frankly, aside from the politics themselves, a lot of liberals out there, a lot of people are going to simply be so damn excited that Trump is gone, that we don't have to deal with the 24-7, you know, tweet storm, um, when he's sitting on the shitter at 2 a.m., <laughs> that people are frankly going to tune out. I really believe that they're going to tune out some of this other stuff that Biden will be getting away with. Oh, 100%. Um, There's no doubt about that. And it's the same thing that happened during the Obama administration. We had suffered under eight years of Bush, and here we have a pretty um, good hope of changing U.S. policy. And, and of course, Obama failed on virtually every front uh, with very, very little um, until later, maybe in a second term, uh, resistance. Um, and so I think we're probably going to see the same thing, at least this first couple of years of the Biden administration. Do you think that the policies that are most egregious from Trump, the ones that are, you know, the really egregiously criminal, inhumane kind of policies like child separation, family separation policies and so forth, at least um, do you think that Biden is actually going to act on those things? Because again, I'm thinking back to 2008 and actually I'm thinking back to 2004 kneeling down in the mud in Washington, protesting against the Bush administration's detention at Guantanamo, torturing of prisoners, etc., right? Protesting against all of that, making that one of the sort of the, after the Iraq war, it was one of the things that I was most passionately uh, uh, protesting about. And then Obama comes along, and one of the core promises was that Gitmo would be shut down. And of course, it never was. And so here we are with fucking concentration camps and children and families being separated. And here comes Biden. And I don't have all that much faith that he's going to change it. I certainly don't have any faith that he's going to change it. Um, I think that he will approach it differently. Um, and if he doesn't change it, he will just say, hey, we're doing what we can. We inherited this mess, right? I think that's going to be an excuse you're probably going to hear a lot over the next uh, you know, few months initially. Um, I think we're going to see a slew of executive orders overturning some of Trump's executive orders. Uh, and it will, on the, at face value, look like Biden is doing a lot of things 
But when it comes down to the nuts and bolts of U.S. policy, uh, not a lot's going to change. You know, there, there, there will be some benefits, of course. I think that it's going to, uh, Biden administration potentially is going to have a much different relationship with public land policy. Um, and he will have probably candy coat some of our immigration policy. But when it comes to those, you know, detentions at the border and those sorts of things, I, I definitely don't expect those things to, to stop anytime soon. And I definitely wouldn't count on Biden dismantling Trump's fence that started to be built either. You know, I, um, again, I think that also is going to play into the fact that there are a lot of Trump supporters out there, a lot of new Republicans that are going to be putting that pressure from the other side on a, a Biden administration to toe the centrist line. And frankly, as we've already seen, uh, one thing that's been different from 2008 is that there are a few progressives in in the House of Representatives with AOC and the squad um, that that was not there in 2008. Uh, but we're already seeing the the establishment Democrats blaming them for the losses in the House, even though they're the ones that won. So the pressure from the left is already being ignored, where I think that Biden will will cave to the pressure coming from the right. Do you think that Biden will actually accomplish anything other than these executive orders? Because, you know, one of the things about one of the things about Trump was that he used executive orders um, as a political tool in order to manipulate public opinion, in order to create divides and so forth, whether it was regarding, you know, the DACA uh, program or what have you. And I guess what I'm wondering is, how do you think Biden will use executive orders? Because Obama demonstrated just how weak Democrat a Democrat president can be by using the executive orders in the way that he did, such that pretty much everything was overturned. Well, there's a little saying in grassroots environmental groups that executive orders are, have no teeth because they simply can be overturned by an executive order. Um, so executive orders aside, I, I don't believe that Biden, frankly, will even try to get through progressive policy when it comes to the environment in particular. You know, they're, they're, they're not going to get a Green New Deal, for instance, passed in the House that isn't palatable to Republicans, which means it won't really be a Green New Deal, right? It's going to be a pro-resource uh, extraction, green energy transition deal um, that might put some people to work, but it's not going to save us from climate catastrophe. Uh, the Biden administration is really just coming in to save face. Um, and, I, and I think that's more of what we can expect um, and more business as usual on that front, then we can't expect any sort of progressive policies coming out of this administration. And they're going to blame uh, Republicans for holding it up, but uh, it won't matter if the Democrats control the Senate. It won't matter if they control the House. You can go back to 2008 again, when when Obama came into office, had complete control um, of the Senate and literally passed to nothing of relevance. Um, I, I don't believe there's any reason to, to think that Biden is going to change that course you know, he ran as a centrist and he will govern as a centrist. No doubt. A couple of more issues I just want to get your take on. One area where uh, Trump really did make significant changes, obviously for the worse, with dealing with Israel and Palestine. Uh, obviously, the move of the the embassy 
was a was a significant one, but really kind of letting Netanyahu and the Israeli right essentially uh, write U.S. policy vis-a-vis Palestine and Israel. So um, famously, you know, Biden was Obama's vice president. Famously, Netanyahu was a raging racist towards Obama, treated him very badly, but Obama had negative feelings towards Netanyahu. My question is, do you think that Biden coming in is going to do anything at all to change the significant inroads that Trump made as far as shifting U.S. policy to the right? I wish I could be hopeful about that, but no. Um, and we can just listen to Biden's own words on Israel to know that he's not going to come in and um, change the realignment that happened under Trump. Um, he has said, and, and Harris has reaffirmed, that they're not going to tie aid to Israel with the policies of the Israeli government. That there just tells you that they're going to not put pressure on Israel. The only way that Israel would actually listen um, by withholding aid. So no, I don't think that we're going to see a radical realignment. And certainly we didn't see one under the Obama administration either, um, which Biden, I think is. Well, uh, to be clear, I I don't mean a radical realignment so much as a returning to the Obama alignment as far as Israel and Palestine, where there was at least, uh, you know, an attempt made to uh, at least, you know, pay lip service to a uh, a negotiation process, a peace process, etc., where the U.S. was not exactly uh, gung-ho supporting Israel and the settlement policies and so forth. So there was a huge shift even to the right, even from Obama's policy. And I'm just wondering, will there be a correction back to some Obama stasis? Um, yeah, I think that that's possible. You know, again, I think that it might have to do more with lip service than anything else. Uh, as we saw during the Democratic primary um, most of the Democratic candidates refused to go and speak at APAC, right? They didn't change their position on Israel. They just didn't want to go to APAC and have that baggage and get pressure from the left um, about their positions on Israel. But meanwhile, Harris has still went to Israel in like 2017 and was photographed with ID, you know, members of the IDF and in front of the, the Iron Dome missile defense battery uh, I, there's just, I don't think there's any real evidence that they're going to change that policy, but yeah, I think they'll change their rhetoric around it. Um, as they probably will around almost every single thing. Um, and it will seem like a stark difference than what we've been dealing with, with Trump, of course. I will almost never say anything positive or even hopeful about, uh, federal law enforcement, the feds, the FBI, or anything like this. They're, for the most part, villains to be uh, to, to, to be uh, scorned in every way. However, there is one question uh, regarding law enforcement that I think is really paramount here, and that is that Obama ignored for eight years the infiltration of law enforcement by outright white nationalists. He ignored the growth of the militia movements. He ignored the growth of the white nationalist movements from, you know, the, the, the crazies out in Idaho to the ones that are just living in the suburbs in California or whatever, right? He ignored a lot of that, all of that, really, even though the FBI had studies showing how much it had infiltrated. And so under the Trump, under the Trump administration in this period, we have 
seen that out come out in the open, not only with the way that the police are acting nowadays and their almost uh, unanimous support for Trump across the country to the, the continued militarization and so forth. So my question has to do with federal agents potentially looking into some of these movements, because from my perspective, I don't know any other entity that would actually be able to have the scope and scale that would be required to take on the white nationalist, white supremacist, three percenters, oath keepers, all of these type of groups, especially since many of them are law enforcement themselves connected to law enforcement and so forth. So my question is, do you think there was any recognition at all about just how dangerous this is? And now that Biden and you know company are going to be back in control, do you think that they might leverage the resources of the federal government to address that in any way? Oh, yeah, certainly. And I mean, it, there was even under the Trump administration, the FBI is well aware of what's going on. Of course, the Trump administration wasn't... Um, you know, they had a pretty fraught relationship with the intelligence community. Uh, but I think that is one of those things that the Biden administration will come in and, and make amends with in, in one of those issues, of course, I think will be the rise of this white, white nationalist. And, and I think just to rewind a little bit about sort of what we can expect from a Biden administration, um, as we sit here and we're frankly, you know, pretty negative about what to expect, but I think pretty sober about it as well. But I think one thing that we won't be seeing is when we have these conflicts arise um, across the country, protest-wise, white nationalist movements, protest, you know, um, the murder of Black Lives Matter activists, those sorts of things. Uh, we're not going to have a president in the, in the White House that is inflaming those things. I think we will have more sanity in dealing with those issues. Um, and part of that, of course, I think we'll be allowing law enforcement to go after them. So the, there, there are going to be some changes that I think, frankly, we should be pretty excited about um, because never in my lifetime have we um, had a divisive president like we've had for the last four years that is a white nationalist himself. And as we've written about and we know about very well um, what his game plan is, you know, the scary thing, of course, is. Uh, there's still plenty of white nationalists that are uh, that are elected officials in Washington that are going to, again, go by Trump's playbook. Um, so I don't think that these these skirmishes um, are over. I think these divisions are very real. I think as the United States uh, grows in population, as it becomes more diverse, as the white population diminishes, as the, uh, the economic um, realities uh, are more dire in rural areas, you're going to continue to see these things erupt. Um, and frankly, you know, that's maybe a little bit foreboding, but I think that uh, this administration will handle it in a much different way than the past administration. And what do you make of the survival chances, or let me rephrase that, how do you think the evolution of QAnon 
will continue uh, because QAnon is obviously not going anywhere either. This is this this there's millions of people following this nonsense, and it is very very real, and it is not going to die with the Trump administration. If anything, it's going to inflame the meta conspiracy about the deep state and all and the pedophiles and the you know the brain the brain eating you know Democrat whatever uh adrenochrome drinkers um but that's obviously going to continue so my question to you is what what do we expect of the QAnon fringe type movements of the conspiracy you know conspiracy world now that the conspiracist in chief won't be there to kind of be the object of their desires 24 7 you know, it's definitely not going to be going away. I think when it comes to these sort of conspiracies, they they live on a continuum and they evolve and they change. And if you go back even four years ago, you know, with Pizzagate and all this other shit, now what, whatever the whatever the uh, conspiracy is today, it's going it's going to definitely be there in the future as well. Um, again, you know, not having someone in the White House that is playing into that, I think, will delegitimize it somewhat. But frankly, I don't have a lot of hope in the American public. We just had, what, how many 70 million people vote for Trump? Um, we know that this country is divided. We know that there is virtually no media literacy in most of this country. So um, I don't have a lot of hope that these sorts of conspiracies are going to go away. And frankly, they're pretty damn dangerous. Um, and uh, I do think that you're, you're likely to see that escalate in the years ahead because uh, our our population isn't getting any more intelligent. I guess the real question for me when it comes to QAnons and, and, and so forth is, what is the end goal of this? Because one could see a scenario in which, and I'm not saying this happens, but I, one could see a scenario in which they become a more organized political force, one that is fused with in various ways the militia movements the uh white nationalist uh currents and so forth such that it is this kind of weird sort of conspiracy laden quasi paramilitary type thing evolving um you know i saw that even here with the even even driving around with my family the um you know the trump caravans and stuff you saw q logos q bumper stickers and so forth right so like yeah i guess my question i guess my question is do you think there's a chance that these things start fusing together well i think they already are I, uh marjorie taylor green out of georgia uh she is a QAnon supporter and she's going to be going to Congress. Um, so there, you know, I, I think we got to keep an eye on this. I mean, they are fascist and they aren't going to be going away and they're now being elected to office. Um, I don't know if she's any crazier than, you know, a Lindsey Graham type, but, um, we got to keep an eye on it. And it's a very serious thing. And I think, you know, we're going to see this evolve, and the fact that it's not just this internet existing entity that they're out in the streets that they're uh in public that that of course we can we can lay on trump's doorstep he's the one that legitimized this to the point where these people aren't afraid to come out and wave their QAnon flags um so yeah i don't think it's going to be going away and the left should definitely keep a close eye on it one thing that gives me hope, and I'm kind of thinking back to uh, the earlier part of our conversation and thinking about parallels between 2008 and 2020, and one thing that gives me hope is the fact that the kids today are way smarter 
than than yeah. than than uh, you know kids and and I was I guess I was in my twenties at that point. But you know uh, they're they're way smarter. They're way more politically savvy. They're way more left uh, and and informed about left politics than than uh, my generation certainly was or generations prior. And um, so I guess. I have some hope that um, you know the, the the coming generation is not going to be as deluded by this sort of liberal lies that are going to emanate from a Biden administration, right? That 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 you know, like you said earlier, that well, you know, the liberals are going to go to sleep. That's absolutely true. But I think there's a lot of young people who have way less illusions about what liberal Americans and white liberals in particular are really about. Yeah, I hope that that's true. And I, I think that's a good possibility. Um, but I think a lot of them also haven't lived through this sort of time when you have hope in a candidate or a, a, and then you're totally disenfranchised <laughs> here later. Um, well, that's what I'm getting at is yeah. like, I, I, I'm wondering if they're smart enough to know that this has already happened, even though they weren't old enough to have gone through it. Well, you know so what I mean? Because like, certainly if we even look at like the, the Sanders campaign, right? I mean, he was definitely, it didn't, they didn't, it didn't end up being this way at the polls, but he was largely supported by young people. Those young people didn't turn their backs on the Democratic Party, didn't turn their backs on the Biden administration because I think the hate for Trump was so visceral. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if they stay that politically engaged. You know, people like AOC, uh, you know, all of these young, there's more young candidates coming at the local level. Um, I think that you're right. Uh, I think that the the youth is the best hope that we have for transforming the future of American the future of American electorate. I just find them to have way less illusions. That's all. I I, I think yeah. that, um, you know, socialism is so much more mainstreamed. Left politics is so much, it's, it's so ubiquitous online in the YouTube, you know, uh, blogosphere, whatever uh, video world, uh, Twitch and all of these different platforms. These kids are just, they're, they're a lot more savvy. And I'm hoping that that means that they know that the, task before us is to confront the Biden administration at every turn, every day, on every policy. Certainly. And I, I, I do think that they operate independently of sort of, they're not going to just follow, for instance, what Sanders tells them to do. I mean, I think that that is a, a hopeful thing. And I hope that that contingent of the left, the young people, and then of course the old left, right? Us, <laughs> the, the other and other progressives as well are going to hold Biden's feet to the fire and, and really doesn't matter that he, you know, Trump is gone. Um, these policies are still in place and we're going to have to go after Biden um, as much or more than we did with Donald Trump. Uh, so yeah, I think that the the youth is our our biggest hope. Um, it's definitely not not the Democratic Party that's the biggest hope. The youth are our one of our biggest hopes, and one of our other biggest hopes is that every listener goes and gets a subscription to Counterpunch Plus, the brand new subscriber section from Counterpunch. Josh, before we go, tell us about Counterpunch Plus, uh, what the impetus was for creating Counterpunch Plus, and the launch, and how it's going. Yeah, um, as a lot of our readers know, we have ceased to publish our print magazine, um, which is, you know, it was a really tough decision for us to make. Uh, but 
it, it was also an easy decision because it really just wasn't making we were losing money we were losing readers the print subscribers were way way down um and our digital content uh had exploded so we really had to come up with a way that we could give our readers something um and also uh still have that great content that you would find in the magazine online so we came up with this idea of having cp plus Essentially what it is, is it's our magazine in digital format. And instead of coming out all at once, it comes out weekly with different articles. Um, you know, it's just a little perk if you subscribe or want to donate to Counterpunch that you're going to get access to all this new great material from some of your favorite writers. And on top of that, you're going to get discounts to on our, you know, for books, for merch, um, as well as uh, access to um, all of our archives, over 400 issues of our newsletter and our magazine. So if you're a fan of Alexander Coburn, you can go back and read all of his great stuff in, in the newsletter, which frankly, you can't find anywhere else on the web. So um, it's pretty cool. We're pretty excited about it. And uh, so far, it's getting a lot of traction and it's uh, free for everyone to just go and check out until uh, the new year, at which point you'll have to be a subscriber to Counterpunch to have access to it. And one of the things I really love about it is the variety of the content because it's you know it's investigative pieces, it's it's uh, international relations stuff, but then it's also you know all kinds of all kinds of other things, book reviews, cultural criticism, things like that. That's that's I, in my opinion, that's where Counterpunch really delivers, where a lot of other outlets do not, is that variety of perspectives and variety of content. Yeah, I think that we have. You know, we have so many writers and so, so much diversity within our ranks that as people that listen to your podcast know, you know, we, you go to Counterpunch because you're going to find stuff that you agree with. You're going to find stuff that you find appalling. You're going to get angry. You're going to send me an email that says you're going to come into my house and kill my dog. But that's okay. I mean, that's what Counterpunch is all about, that we're, we're here to hash it out and, um, Counterpunch, frankly, would be pretty damn boring if you came just to, you know, regurgitate that whatever you're going to find on a lot of the other websites out, out there that are allegedly on the left. So I think that's where Counterpunch stands out. Um, and of course, we sprinkle in culture and music reviews and everything else because the left shouldn't be drab. I mean, it's it's there's a lot to be excited about. And Jeff and I both love movies and music and books and um, so many of our writers do as well. And that's, that's what we wanted to bring to counterpunch and the pages of counterpunch. And, and I think our readers, you know, find that, find that refreshing. Most certainly. Congratulations on launching Counterpunch Plus successfully. It's really great. The, the look on the website is excellent. I would just urge everybody to consider going over there and getting that subscription. I mean, just, uh, do it, just do it already. Do it. Do it. Anyway. All right. We will leave it there. Josh Frank, managing editor of Counterpunch. Who knows where this is all going to go? We still have Trump for another, like, what, 60 days or something, 70 days or so. So uh, well, with all with all of this, all, all of this talk about what the Biden administration is going to be like, I think that we just can enjoy the fact that we're going to be watching a 70, 74 year old live tweet, you know, all the stages of grief. Over the yeah, next. absolutely. I'm just, I just worry what, what, what he'll lash out at next in, in, in the. Well, interim. he's probably going to get stuck in the stage of denial, which um, he's Let's already hope. in. So. <laughs> Let's hope so. Yeah. All right, Josh. Thanks for coming on, listeners. Thank you as always. We'll chat again real soon.